Good morning, Abundant Life. You guys are the remnant. We're the remnant here today. No Super Bowl parties for us. At least not in the morning. We'll get there soon enough. You realize that in just about four hours from now, actually a little bit less than that, we're going to be, many of us, watching or joining about a third of our country, 110 million people, watching the 50th Super Bowl. Good portion of you guys really don't care, right? Uh, I mean, or maybe you're watching it because you want to watch the commercials, which have almost equal entertainment value that, to the game itself. But whether you're going to a place or just being at home and watching the game, watching the commercials, not doing anything at all, nevertheless, this country is going to be enthralled with the Super Bowl. It's such an American kind of cultural icon, isn't it? Because it's a contest between the best from the American Conference, this year the Denver Broncos, pitted against the best from the National Football Conference, this year the Carolina Panthers, and they're going to battle it out over about three and a half hours, maybe about six and a half hours if you add the commercial breaks in there. But they're going to battle it out until at one point there's going to be a victor, and then there's going to be a vanquished. There's going to be one team that wins and the other team that loses. There's going to be one team that achieves the pinnacle of success called NFL World Champions, even though there are no other teams outside the United States. (laughs) NFL World Champions. And there's going to be somebody else that's going to be almost, got to play, but didn't get there. And that's how our culture, that's how our society thinks of what it is to succeed and, Lord forbid, what it is to fail. And it's so much a part isn't it, of who we are. We want to be on the, on the winning team. We want to have a life that's counted as success. We don't want to be in that place of, of failure or, or where, where something doesn't turn out the way we had hoped it would. And if we're really honest, there are times where we're really afraid of not achieving the success that we think we need to achieve or are called to achieve and we get together with our work colleagues and they're concerned about whether they're going to get promoted or they're concerned about whether the company's going to do well or whether their kids are going to get in the right school or whether, you know, on and on it goes. And there's a real anxiety that that produces. We can lose sleep. We can be quite concerned about, you know, um, how this is going to work out. We can get procrastinating, we can get micromanaging, we can do all these kinds of things so that we don't get to that place where we're not succeeding. We don't ever want to be a place where we're considered not successful. And so the Super Bowl kind of epitomizes that. And today we're going to be in the second part of our series called Chosen because the Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus and he is saying, you guys are so special Because you've been chosen by God since before he made anything, since before any creation. We looked at this last week. You were chosen to belong to him, to be a part of his family, to be something completely different other than what your culture around you tells you you are, which is just kind of make life work the way it's supposed to work, however you want it to work, et cetera, et cetera. We looked at that because as we looked at that, we saw that out of that comes our own sense of value, a value that is God-given, a value that is spirit-affirmed. We have value. And not only do we have value and worth, we have purpose, that God created us not just to exist, but to actually do something, something for Him. We are His image bearers. And so we looked at that. 
And so Paul is interested in making sure the Ephesian church knows that they are the new people of God, that they've been formed with purpose, with value. And now this week we're going to look at the fact that they've been chosen to actually succeed. The very thing that our world so desperately wants to do, each person's life, each organization that people belong to, they want it to be a success. They want to succeed. They want it to achieve the goals for which it was designed. And Paul is saying to Ephesus, and by extension to us today, God wants you to succeed as well. Now, as we unpack that this morning, we're going to see that the Lord's definition of success transcends more than we can think or imagine about what success truly is. We kind of keep it in that Super Bowl sphere. Somebody's going to win because somebody's got to lose, but that's not what God says. So we're going to look at that. So as we do, I want us to consider, we'll look at three central truths, if you will, because if we're going to succeed, we have to know where we're aiming. If we're going to succeed, we have to act accordingly. If we're going to succeed, we're going to have to access the power of God all along the way. So if you wouldn't mind turning with me, we're going to be in Ephesians 4 today. And we're going to start by looking at verses 17 through 24. Ephesians 4, verses 17 through 24. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Amen. So what does it mean when we talk about succeeding? When, when, when we say, when Paul says you are chosen to succeed in so many words, what is he saying? He is saying, in essence, you're chosen to live out the life that God has called you to do with the power that he provides. To succeed begins with knowing Christ. You've heard the old adage about getting ahead in life. It's not so much what you know, but who you know. You guys heard that? It's kind of a cynical way of saying, you know, talent really doesn't matter. It's all about the politics at work. But here's the reality for the Christian. It is about who you know. It's about whether you know Jesus Christ. It's about whether, as we saw last week, you're actually in Christ. You're living in him. You're empowered by his spirit. You want only what he wants for your life. You're focused on him. You come before him each and every day and you say, Lord, here's my life. Do with it as you will. You've said that I have to pick up my cross daily. I'm prepared to do that by your help. That's the root. That's the beginning of success. Because success is essentially to say, Lord, I belong to you. It starts with you. You're the God who made everything. You're the God who knows my past. You're the God who guides me in the present and you know my future. I can trust you with all that I am, all that I want, all that I desire, all that I think I need. I give all those things over to you for your outworking, however you've determined to do that. Whatever way will that I can live to bless others. 
I freely offer to you for your outworking. So we're getting in touch. We're linking ourselves with the God of all power. We're linking ourselves with the God who in, with, in whom we move and we have our being, who works out everything in accordance with his will, who brought us from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the son he loves. We are connected to the God through faith in him who allows us to approach his throne in freedom and confidence. If that's the God that you know, if that's who we know, how is it that we cannot even, how could we even contemplate not being successful in this life? It starts with who you know. And then it goes very quickly on to the team that you belong. Now, I don't know if the Broncos are going to win or the Panthers are going to win. You know, some of you, one of you, actually has, you know, some kind of, you know, stake in that game. But we don't know who's going to win. We don't know who's going to be on the winning team. If you're Peyton Manning, are you going to be the quarterback of that winning team? If you're Cam Newton, are you going to be the quarterback of the Panthers as the winning team? But if you belong to Christ, then you're part of his body. If you're in the body, if you're in the church of of God, then you're part of the winning team. What What does God say through Paul in Ephesians, he says this, says Ephesians 3.10. His intent, meaning God's intent, was that now, through the church, that's the church at Ephesus back then, that's the church called Abundant Life here today, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The manifold wisdom of God is a unique phrase to Paul. It's found just here. And it means all the aspects of what God is doing in this world to renew it, to save it, to make sure that it is redeemed because it is God's possession through Jesus Christ. Every aspect of that is the manifold wisdom. And he has chosen the church, this group of us called his image bearers, to be his instrument to do that. And this is serving notice to the powers in the heavenly realms because they're still evil forces. The forces of the enemy are still allowed to work this side of heaven, this side of Christ's return. And this verse is telling us that God is served notice to every one of them that their days are numbered, that their time is coming to an end, and that God is doing that through the church through each one of us who are privileged to play a role. We are on a winning team and we're given specific assignments And if we do those together, then the gates of hell truly will not prevail against abundant life or against whatever local congregation you may be a part of if you're visiting here today. Nothing will come against God's church because we're on the winning side because of what he's done, because we belong to him. And so, I don't know about you, that's actually pretty exciting. You, you could be, you could cheer for the Broncos, you could cheer for the Panthers, you could cheer for the church. Like, yeah, we're on the winning team. This is what it means to be part of the church. Praise God. And when somebody calls you up and they said, you know, I've been through spiritual warfare, but thank you for your prayers because we prayed about it in our small group. And I just felt like the enemy fled from me when I resisted that temptation. When I asked you to hold me up, you go, yeah, way to go. Way to catch that pass. Way to make that first down. Way to score that touchdown. That'd be the metaphor. That's cheering for your team. When you say as a parent, you call up, uh, you know, mom's time out is a great place to get encouragement. And so when somebody says, you know, I got up for the fifth feeding in about four hours and I don't know what to do. And mom said, you know what? You're in a tough season, but we love you. We support you. You can call us or text us. We've been there. Like, thank you, Lord. Thank you for putting me on a winning team. Thank you for helping me be the mom 
that you've designed me to be. So there's all kinds of other applications, but it is a blessing to be on the winning team. It is a blessing to know the Lord in that way. So let's look at the three things that I talked about in order to make sure that we are actually succeeding. The first is aim. What is the aim? When you talk about being a success, you have to aim at something. If you're going to be a successful football team, typically you're aiming to be at the top. You're aiming to be at to win the Super Bowl. There's only two teams, out, I think out of 36, that are there and playing for that this afternoon. Some teams, actually, their success is just to go win you know, more games than they lose. So you can start with small beginnings. I don't know, it doesn't matter where you are. But you've got to have some goal in mind, some aim, some purpose that you know that if you get there, that is what success is called. So you have to focus on our aim. Winston Churchill said this. Winston Churchill, the prime minister of England, came to that role in the darkest days of Great Britain when they were threatened by Nazi Germany, threatened. Uh, Germany had already taken over most of Europe by that point, had just beaten France, had steamrolled over Belgium, and now they had Britain in its sights. And he was about to, he had to brace the country for what became the battle of Britain and the threat of invasion and the end of everything that they knew as life in a free country. So it was no small task. And Churchill is giving a radio address. He gave frequent radio addresses during that time to uh, his countrymen. And in one particular one, he says this. He says, you ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terrors. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. So as part of the church that God has brought you to, that he's put you in, what is our aim? And I can answer with this focus. It is to be the image bearers of Jesus Christ. To bring glory to God by what you do because you have the name of Jesus in your heart and in your life. Our aim is to live for him thoroughly, wholly, completely, 24-7, with every breath that he gives us, all the days of our life. That is our aim. Paul says it this way in the first verse of of chapter 4 in Ephesians. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And last week, we looked at that calling. A lot of that calling was unpacked in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. When we saw that in Christ, we have so many blessings. In Christ, we have the calling. In Christ, we've been sealed by his Holy Spirit, guaranteeing what is to come. Everything is done in Christ. And Paul is saying our aim is to live a life worthy of that calling of being in Christ. God chose us. We did not choose him. He chose us, and we live faithfully to that. And that should fill us, you know, with joy and with purpose and excitement. And you know what? It also distinguishes us when you talk about success from the kinds of things that our, our neighbors want. I mean, if you, if you have a next door neighbor or the person in the apartment next to you, at, at some level, we want the same things. We, we're glad for the roof over our head. We want to put food on our table. We want to make sure that our job is good. If we've got children, we want to make sure that they're getting a good education, that they've got some prospects for a better future than our own. Those are things that are normal to any kind of family. Those are indeed what Scripture would call blessings. But those aren't necessarily the things that a Christian lives primarily for. We live primarily to bless and glorify God, no matter what the circumstances are. 
So if your neighbor and you, you're not yet believing neighbor, but you're a believing person, maybe you, for example, work at the same employer and you both go to the the conference and you get bad news. And the bad news is the business isn't doing so well. And so we're going to have to look at laying people off. We haven't made the decision now. We wanted to give you a heads up. And so you both walk out of that meeting and you go and now you've got anxiety. Now you've got some concerns, understandably so. What's going to happen if I lose my job? How am I going to make my rent? What kind of provision am I going to do? What is the difference in that scenario between the person whose aim is to glorify God and the person who's just trying to live a good life? When you live to glorify God, you are saying, Lord, this isn't the news that I wanted. You know, I could have thought of better news at the, at the meeting than the what I just got, but I'm turning to you. And I want your mind, because I still want to glorify you in this job. I still want to glorify you by my response. I still want to let my, not my neighbor know that you're the God who provides. That you're the God who has a hope and a future for me. That you're the God who gave me the kids that I have, and you're not going to let me down. And so in that example, you get to be the, the image bearer of Jesus, who can come alongside your friend and say, you know what? I know this is tough news for both of us, but let me just tell you how I'm dealing with it. Let me just tell you that I'm on my knees before the Lord who brought me to this job to begin with and is never going to let me go, never going to let me down, knows where he's going to take me if I actually lose this job. And by the way, I love you. I'm going to pray for you. I'm just going to grab you into my little lifeboat of prayer and we're going to pray this thing together. That's an opportunity. Our primary aim is to glorify God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. That is true success. By the way, am I against success that comes from doing a good job at work and, and desiring a promotion? No. The, all the, look, you, you can't read the story of Joseph without realizing that God blesses faithful folks. And throughout Scripture, he is blessing faithful men and women who sought to live for him first and foremost. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. But you cannot determine the state of your relationship with the Lord or your place in the church by your circumstances. To succeed in life as a Christian is primarily and fundamentally a call to relationship with God and participation in the church. It is not a set of positive, fun circumstances all through your life. God brings a lot of fun and positive circumstances, but that's not what we live for. All right. So that's our aim. What about the action part? Okay, he's like, okay, I want to do that. I want to make sure that I'm focused on being, on giving glory, bringing glory to God by everything I do, all my responses. How do I do that? I gave you a, a little example. But Paul, when he's writing to the Ephesians, gets really practical. Look at verse 25. I'm going to look at, read verses 25 through 28. It's a bit of a catalog of ways that the church needs to be the church so that we in the church start to experience Christ. And if somebody is visiting the church and they don't know who Christ is, they begin to get an idea. Wow, you guys are doing these things. There's something different about you. Tell me more. That's kind of what he's talking about. So let's look at that. Verses 25 through 28. It's not a complete list. It's a representative list. There's other lists that Paul includes in other epistles. But we're in Ephesians, so we're going to read these. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, 
but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. I'm just going to continue. This is great. Verse 29. Uh, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What's Paul doing? He's framing for the believers at Ephesus what it really means to represent Christ, what it truly means to bear his image. What it truly means, if you're a Bronco player, to be a Bronco. You put on a uniform, it's orange. And it has a number, and it has your name, and you wear a helmet. What does it mean to be a Christian? It's character, and it's ways of relating to people that have their best interests at heart, not your own. That have a sense of God's being in charge of things, and not our own sort of limited thinking and which usually and too often breeds a certain anxiety, a certain impatience. We're out of our old self, and we've put on the new man, as we read earlier. That's what he's talking about. This is sort of a a list. He wants the, the people at Ephesus, he wants the people at Abundant Life to know what it means to represent God well. What does it mean to really be his image bearer? What's our aim? And now he's being very practical here. And so he says, put on the new man. Put off the old man and put on the new man. And then the first application that he gives us in verse 25 is this. He says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Here's what he's saying. You know, if you're part of the body of Christ, then if you're bearing Jesus' image, if you're representing him, you just got to be straight up. You just have to be real. You have to be authentic. It starts with you. You don't have to be anything other than what God made you. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be puffed up. You know, like I'm all that. There's a term out there called the humble brag. You guys know what the humble brag is? Humble brag is when you usually consciously try to get away with bragging about yourself by couching it in some phony show of humility. For example... Hey, that 1986 minivan is so much more practical for going to Home Depot than my 2015 Tesla. I'm sure you can get a lot more stuff in there than I can. Or, I'm so glad that you got to watch the Super Bowl in the privacy of your own room, your own family room today, and you could see all the commercials and you saw every play three times over. I'll tell you, it was crazy going through the traffic to get to Levi Stadium, and I didn't even see any of the commercials. That's like the humble brag. That's like... You know, you got it better than I, but I really got it good over here. That, that's kind of puffery. That's not for the Christian. The Christian just says, here I am. You know, I'm not perfect. I need fixing just like you need fixing. I'm just going to be a little bit candid at times about where I need some help. And so it's, as we say about church, it's a come-as-you-are party. You don't really have to dress up. You can just be who you are. Now, for the Valentine's Day thing, if you're a young adult, you do have to dress up. And young adults, if you're not signed up for that now, let me just, let me do a product placement. Please go to that. That will be a marvelous event that Dele and Dapo and a team of people have put together. So I hope you're able to take advantage of that on Valentine's Day evening. 
So, so we're not trying to present ourselves other than who we are as works in process, as the way that God is working in us and through us. And so we want to represent our, you know, we want to be who we are and we want to be able to speak the truth to other people in love. That's hard to do. That's particularly hard to do, I think, in, in the average American church to actually be able to tell truth to somebody. Because why? Because we don't like being told about things that we have blind spots and things that we can't see and, and habits or ways of being that just maybe aren't very godly. And we're aware of them. We just don't like to be told about them. Or sometimes we're not aware of them. We do need to be told about them. But we don't like it when people tell us. And so we make sure we're not going to tell them. And so what happens is the body of Christ is not built up into the image of Christ as well as it could be. You know, if you're watching the Super Bowl, there's a position called the quarterback, and that person, that guy has to throw passes and he has to hand off, and after every set of downs, he goes back to the bench, and the coaches come and they come down with film in real time, they show him, they put up a a tablet, and they show him the plays that he ran, and they show him where he missed people that were open, and show him why he, he got rushed and why he didn't complete that pass. In real time, he's getting feedback. And you never see either of those guys, you won't see them today, you know, putting their hands on their hips going, I can't believe you're criticizing me again. Can't believe you're showing me that I missed that guy. No, that, why? Because they want to get better. Because they want to make sure that the next time they get in there, they're more the quarterback that they were supposed to be in order to win the Super Bowl that they came to play. And this is why God sends us people who see our blind spots, who want to say something, who need to say something. Now, isn't that what Jesus did for his own disciples? Because we're not making stuff up. We're not trying to be in people's business. This is what Jesus did. Look at Matthew 16. There's two examples of his interaction with Peter. First is a blessing where he says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah, the Son of God. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. He blesses him for the divine revelation that he's been given. And then he talks about all the, all the blessings that will come through Peter to the church. And then it says just two verses later that when Jesus began to explain to them that he must suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the Pharisees and he would have to go to Jerusalem to die. And then Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him and says, no, you don't have to do this. And the Lord who had recently given Peter a blessing now rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. Two guys, two different conversations, one purpose. What was Christ's purpose with Peter in both those conversations? To make him the person he needed him to be in order to lead the church that he designed him to be a part of the leadership. He and the other apostles. To show that he had been given a special revelation about who Christ was and what the church would be, that was the blessing. And to make sure that Peter did not dissuade Christ from his ultimate saving act by dying on the cross, that was also a necessary rebuke so that Peter could learn how to be the leader that God purposed him to be. Different responses to the same guy for, the, for one reason. And so when people in your circle, in your growth group, or people who know you in your prayer group come alongside and they say, can I have a word with you? about something that God's put on my heart. Here's the question. Will you receive that? 
Now, you, if, if, the answer to that should be yes. Um, but the way to do that is that you say, Lord, start with me. Look, if, you've, if, God, if God's put something on your heart to share with somebody, ask, ask for yourself to be the first one to get some kind of feedback. Lord, start with me. Lord, let me hear something that you want to say through somebody who knows me well. If we would be able to do that out of a sense of love relationship, it starts with being in a relationship with a person. It starts with making sure that they have your best interest at heart, you have their best interest at heart. But then when they come alongside of you and they say, can I share something? Be a person who can receive it. Proverbs 27 says, better is open rebuke than love that is hidden. You may think, you know, you know that you love that person, but if you don't love them enough to share what God's put on your heart, that's hidden love. That's not going to work out. That's not going to get them to the place that they need to be. So we want to be people that are bold enough to share. And we want to be people that are mature enough to receive. Because the very next verse in Proverbs 27, verse 6, gives us a flip side of the coin. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But an enemy multiplies kisses. In other words, somebody may come at you and they say, can I share something about stuff I've seen? And you say, I'm busy. Text me. Uh, Let me get back to you. Not now. Uh, Did you pray about it? I don't know what you're going to say, but just say, yeah, I'd love to hear what you have to say. And by the way, can I say, go to, it's really better if you go to somebody face to face. Please don't send those things through emails. Emails are liable to so much misinterpretation. Emails are great for making appointments, and they're great for terms and conditions that apply to many people. They aren't really good for heart-to-heart, face-to-face communication, because there's no face-to-face. So you've got to go, go to that person, can I speak with you? And then you've got to hear them. And even if you don't like the way they packaged it, even if they were just sort of reacting to something you'd done for the umpty-umpth time, and you, you know, and it's stung. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. You still need to receive and say, Lord, I didn't like the way it got dished out, but it was what I, it was part of my necessary diet. Don't let your pride get in the way. Somebody once said about pride, swallow your pride. It's non-fattening. So don't let those things hinder you. Speak to one another in truth and in love. The final thing is you say, okay, I want to do that. We talked about speaking the truth, and there's a whole host of other applications in that catalog that I read about anger and putting aside rage. And those are big things. We talked a little bit about that last week. But you're very quickly going to run up to the fact that, Lord, I don't have enough power to do that. If I'm really honest, there's times I don't even want to do that. I actually like being ticked off at times because people got to know that I'm upset about certain things. It's at those times that you got to access the power that's made available to each one of us who bears the name and, and bears the image of Jesus. And that power is his Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul writes in chapter 3, verse 16. This is a prayer that he's actually praying for the Ephesians. He says, I pray that out of God's glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And even earlier than that, he described that power from the Holy Spirit as the same power, the great power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's like, that's a lot of power. Do you think God is going to be inadequate for any of your needs? Do you think if you turn to him in the moment of temptation to either get angry or to fly off the handle or to withdraw uh, in some kind of sulking kind of 
frame of mind that you can't instead go to your father and say, Lord, just give me the power that I need for this situation. If you remember the Nehemiah series from the fall, remember when Nehemiah got the worst news he could have received, his first response was to turn to God in prayer. And there he stayed until God gave him specific instruction about what to do. There are times that we need to turn to God in prayer when we are tempted to do otherwise, when we're tempted to be angry, when we're tempted what? To act out of our old man, the way we used to think, the way we used to process stuff, the way we used to get angry, the way we used to try to organize and control our world around our needs in our time frames. Whatever that old man is for you, that old person, that's the one that we've put aside. But we can only do that if in that moment of temptation to put on the old man, we access the power that is available to us through His Holy Spirit. If we would do that, we would see God transform each and every situation. When your child comes to you at about 11 at night with a homework assignment that they didn't tell you about, and you know is easily another 90-minute deal, and it was due tomorrow at 8 o'clock, what do you do? Do you freak out and say that they, their, their educational prospects are now doomed because they're not going to get it done unless I help them? Do you think that they actually are related to, you know, the other side of the family, not your side? For some reason, <laughs> question them in some way. Think that they're a terrible child. We have all kinds of temptations that in an instant come to us about thinking things. And we've got to say, Lord... What's your mind on this situation? How do I think about what I just heard? How do I deal with what I've just experienced? If we would do that, then you're getting in touch. And you're like, Lord, give me your power. You don't have to pray a lot to get his power. You know, the ancient prayers throughout centuries, people would pray and were taught to pray this. Lord, have mercy. That's it. Lord, have mercy. I don't know what to do in this situation. Lord, have mercy. And if you say that prayer, not that repetition you know, gets God to act, but it's a way of centering yourself very much in the presence of the Lord. And it's a way of saying, it's a nice shorthanded way of saying, Lord, I have no idea what to do right now, but I know you're going to make a way because I don't see one. Just Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on my kid with the homework assignment. Give me some strength. Have mercy on the teacher. Have mercy. That's okay to pray. That's accessing the power that's available to us. If, that's, if the power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to us, do you think that you can start to be successful in the callings that God has given you? Absolutely. It would be like, like the Broncos getting 10 extra guys. You know, they get to field 21 men versus 11. Be like, that's not fair. That's right. When God's on your side, it's not fair. It's not meant to be fair. It's meant to be victorious. It's meant to take you to the place that he's always destined you to be. So if we would do that, if we would make sure that we're aiming for the things that God's called us to do, that we would act in the way that he's calling us to act in whatever situation that is, and that we would access his power, then like Paul, we would be able to give glory to God as he does in chapter 3, verse 20, and we would be able to say, praise God who does exceedingly, abundantly, more than we can ask or imagine. He does that for us in our own lives, in our family's lives, and in our church life. Let's move forward in that truth, in that success, because we were chosen to succeed. Amen? Amen. Amen.